Psalm 63. Psalm 63. There's two reasons why I'm doing Psalm 63. Number one, Psalm 63 verses 1 through 8 is by far, uh, in, in competition with Psalm 1, my favorite portion in the Psalms. I highly recommend that you memorize it. Anytime I have five minutes to spare, to just spend some time with the Lord Jesus, I will very regularly just just sit down and and recite this psalm from memory. Uh, It's it's a very precious one to me. It's led me into, it's helped me understand what, what what the condition of my soul should be when it comes in contact with the Lord Jesus. The second reason why we're doing Psalm 63 is, newsflash, summer is over. It's done. Vacation time gone. It is time to hit the ground running. School's starting. Homework is starting. Deadlines are starting. Routines are starting. Schedules, calendars are going to be filled up. Is anybody with me here? The, 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 the rat race is about to begin. Every single one of us, if we have not already, is going to hit the ground running. It's going to be zero to 60, and there's a danger here. Because if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself running on empty. And we were not, our souls were not meant to run on empty. If they are not filled up, if they are not satisfied with the right things, we're going to find ourselves in a dangerous place. Car can't run without gas. It's got to fill up somewhere. And so as you're going through the craziness that we're all about to go through, You've got to make sure that you know where you're going to fill up your soul in the chaos. And Psalm 63 is a picture of a man, King David, who knew how to refresh himself in a place that was not refreshing. And you can see the context of Psalm 63. Before you even get to verse 1, look at the very top there. It's very important when you read Psalms, read the little heading right before even verse 1. Sometimes it gives you a very detailed description about the context of where the psalm was, was written, what it's coming out of. So right before verse 1, it says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It's not very specific, but most, most scholars agree that this is talking about 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. An even deeper context is David has just been basically dethroned by his own son, Absalom. He's being chased around. He's trying to be killed by his own son. He's, he's got a bunch of people with him who are looking to David to care for them. And then on their way, they come across this guy named Shimei, who's cursing them, throwing stones at them, casting dust upon them. And David even thinks that it's from God, that he's being cursed by God. And it says in 2 Samuel 16, verse 14, And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. They were weary in a desert land, and in the desert, somehow, David was able to refresh himself. Now, you could argue, well, he was by the Jordan River. It says, at the Jordan. Jordan River has water. So he probably went down to the water, splashed some water on his face. Very easy to do that. The problem is, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, if you are there, hopefully your Bible has a footnote. If you go down to the bottom of the page, it says, in the Hebrew, that last phrase, at the Jordan, is not even in the Hebrew. So it literally reads, and the king 
And all the people who were with him arrived weary. So we didn't even know if there was water. And in fact, if you look at verse 1, end of verse 1, David talks about how he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Somehow he was able to refresh himself, fill himself up when circumstances provided nothing. So how did David do this? So I'm going to be very practical today. A lot of you practical people are like, amen. But you theology nerds are like, man. But all theology should be practical, so don't worry. Five things David does in Psalm 63. Five things David does to enable himself to be refreshed. Number one, he leverages the situation. Number one, he leverages the situation. Verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now what's important to, to realize is that word as at the end of verse one isn't even in the, the original language. It just, it just says in a dry and weary land. Why is this important? Because this, the, the, David's description of his spiritual condition is not compared to a hypothetical situation. Not a hypothetical circumstance, but an actual situation. He's actually in a literal desert place with no water. And he yearns for God so much that his need for God is never superseded by his physical needs. David sees the desert as an opportunity. He leverages the situation. He sees the desert not as a hindrance to him going deeper with the Lord, but as an opportunity to go deeper with the Lord. The desert is not an obstacle, but an opportunity to find deeper satisfaction in God. He leverages the situation. And I want to know, how could this man do this? Because you want to know what we do when we, whenever we get in the desert? We blubber like babies. We cry and we moan and we complain and we murmur as if our situation was totally unique to us. No one understands my situation. And we will fight with a tenacious ferocity to maintain the basis upon which we can continue to blubber and complain. Only a man or woman like David who believes in the absolute providence of God could only ever see a desert as something to be leveraged for deeper satisfaction in God. Maybe your lack of satisfaction in Christ is due to the fact that you are missing the opportunity in the difficult things that God is sovereignly bringing your way. And you're not realizing that Romans 8.28 is not a cliche verse, but is a bedrock for your, own, for your own soul. When you're in the desert, this is not here by happenstance. God has put me in this situation. And I will leverage this situation. It will turn out for my good. Only someone who believes that God is in control 
even of the desert, could see it as an opportunity to go deeper with God. So first, he leverages the situation. Number two, he recalls the shores. He's in a dry and weary land. So he recalls where the water is. Verses two and three. Just verses two right now. So, that's a really important word. (laughs) Anytime you see that word, that means the reason just came. So the reason for verse two is found in verse one. Because of verse one, David does verse two. David recognizes the deep cravings and longings for God in verse 1. And because of that, he recalls the object of his deepest desire in verse 2. Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. He does not see the desert as a hindrance to his growth to his depth with the Lord. He sees it as an opportunity, so he directs his mind's gaze to the object of his deep, innate desire. Innate desires have a proper object of fulfillment. When you are thirsty, you drink water. When you are hungry, you eat food. When a husband and wife have romantic feelings, they make love. Think about it. Would it make any sense for us to have sexual desire, if there were no such thing as sex, that would be very strange. Similarly, would it make any sense to have an innate desire to be satisfied with infinite greatness and glory and beauty, which nothing in this world seems to satisfy if there were no such thing as God? There's a powerful argument for the existence of God in Psalm 63. David does not suppress this longing, but follows his desire toward its proper object. He directs his gaze to God. Now, if you remember, David is in the desert, so how can he look upon God in the sanctuary? So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. You're in the desert, David. How's that even possible? It has everything to do with the tense of the language. Look at verse 2 again. So I have looked. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. That is, he recalls the place where God's glory is seen and known. The sanctuary, that's where the the people of Israel gathered around the temple where God's presence was and the sacrifices were made, where reconciliation with God was had. And furthermore, it is here where David finds the particular aspect of God's glory powerful enough to give him an existential elevation above his present circumstance. Look at verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. That's insane. Don't Don't miss that. The steadfast love of God compared to everything that life has to offer, that is better. My lips will praise you. The steadfast love of God lifts him up out of his present circumstance and provides the refreshment he needs. Why? Because it is better than life. It's better than money. 
It's better than a pay raise. It's better than your ideal job. It's better than sex. It's better than food, better than water, better than drink, better than sleep, better than friends, better than social media, better than phones, better than your own children, their precious faces. It's better than all of that. But what does it really mean for God to love you? I think this is why David connects the glory of God in verse 2 to the love of God in verse 3. Verse 2, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. Beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. Power and glory connected to the love of God. In other words, for God to offer his glorious presence to David, all that God is, all that God can be is for David in his glorious presence. For God to give that to David is the definition of God's love for you. That he would freely offer himself to rebellious, unworthy sinners to satisfy our souls, even though we've gone, as it says in Jeremiah 2, after broken cisterns which hold no water, forsaking the living water. For God to give himself to you in all his glory is the most loving thing he could do for you. And where has he given himself most? In the crucified Lord Jesus. Romans 5. For the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. For while we were still weak, for while we were still weak, why has this love of God been poured into our hearts? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says all the way down a little bit further, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's glory and beauty and grace and love are seen most perfectly in a man crucified on a cross. Number three. So David leverages the situation. It's a desert. This will be for my good. God, God's sovereign over the desert. Here I am. I will use this as a springboard for the, to go deeper with God. But he's in the desert, so he recalls the place where the water is. Next, he gladly surrenders control. Verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. As long as I live, I will bless you. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David says the steadfast love of God is better than life, but he doesn't conclude, therefore, that he should just end his life to be with God but rather offer up our life. The preciousness of God's love does not make us want to end our lives, but offer up our lives. When you encounter the love of God, you no longer cling to your precious little comforts and conveniences. We know what those are. You no longer cling to them with an idolatrous grip but you surrender them. One of the greatest hindrances to your own satisfaction in God 
is your desperate rebellion and holding on to control rather than relinquishing control to God. David knows that the only one wise enough, strong enough to handle this situation that he's in is the Lord Jesus. And so he hands over control. Number four. So he leverages the situation. He recalls the shores. He gladly surrenders control. And number four, this is the most important one. Friends, we are coming to the apex of the psalm. We're climbing a mountain. We're building up to the highest points. Verses 5 through 7 are the peak of Psalm 63. David is working his way up to this point. Number four, he is theologically hedonistic in his aim. He is theologically hedonistic in his aim. Now, by hedonistic, I don't mean self-indulgent selfishness. I just mean he's aiming for satisfaction in God, period. My, verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. That's where I'm going. That's, that's, the, that's the goal. I'm in the desert. I'm thirsting for God. I'm hungering for God. I'm desperate for God. What, I need you to satisfy me, God. So I say hedonistic because of verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I say theological because of verses 6 through 7. When is David satisfied? Verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. This is not empty-minded charismania. This is not emotional-ism. What is inflaming, what is feasting David's soul is truth about God in his mind. Now, I think this verse, verse 5, makes us a little bit uncomfortable if you read it slowly because the literal translation is, my soul is feasted as with fat and rich food. What are you talking about, David? Because David does not say, (laughs) my soul is satisfied as with a healthy kale salad and low-fat dressing. Now I know, (laughs) I know you vegetarians out there are like, yum. (laughs) Vegetarians aside, all right, you're just missing out. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I got no judgment for you, I promise. Um, David's saying, if I were to put this in like like present-day language, He's saying, you know when you haven't eaten all day, like you skip breakfast and your work is so crazy, you miss lunch and you come home and your wife's got a double bacon cheeseburger with it and french fries and ketchup. French fries and ketchup so good, right? And you sink your teeth into that. Oh. And then top it off, you go to Dairy Queen and get a 
get a Reese's peanut butter cup blizzard from Dairy Queen, large, and you just gulp that thing down. Anybody's mouth watering right now? We laugh. But what else is David saying when he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. When I get to know my God, that's what it's like for my soul. That's what I'm after. That's what I want. Can, and I wonder if we think, can someone really talk like, about God like this? Because I, I have to be honest, when I first came across this verse growing up, it just made me feel weird. What is he talking about? I don't even know what that is. I know that I should obey God, read his word, and go to church and do the right things. But satisfaction in God, what are you talking about? Let's hear some other people talk about this. Charles Spurgeon actually has a little comment about this this specific verse. Here's how Charles Spurgeon describes verse 5. There is in the love of God a richness, a sumptuousness, (laughs) a fullness of soul-filling joy comparable to the richest food with which the body can be nourished. A soul hopeful in God and full of his favor is thus represented as feeding upon the best of the best, the dainties of a royal banquet. Charles Spurgeon, man. You try to like write a sermon and then you see what he says and you're like, I just can't preach. <laughs> Every time. John Owen. John Owen, here's how he describes this. This is one of my favorites. There is a salt in spiritual things whereby they are made savory to a renewed mind. Though to other people... Spiritual things are as the white of an egg (laughs) that has no taste or savor in it. Someone without a transformed mind by the Holy Spirit. You know what John Owen says? It's like when you you encounter things in the Bible, when you encounter spiritual things, things about Christ and stuff, you know what it tastes like to you, to your soul? An egg white with no salt that has no taste. That's his point. In this savoring and relish lies the sweetness and satisfaction of spiritual life. Speculative notions about spiritual things when they are alone, so merely thinking about God. Speculative notions about spiritual things when they are alone are dry, sapless, and barren. In this savoring, we taste by experience that God is gracious. Listen to this line. And that the love of Christ is better than wine. You believe that? You believe that the love of Christ is better than wine? You believe when you come in contact with Christ's precious love for you, that it intoxicates your heart and soul better than anything else? Or whatever else has the most grateful relish unto someone with sensual appetites. John Owen saying, you name it. Just name it. Nothing compares to the way that the love of Christ satisfies. This is the apex of the psalm. Satisfaction is not a means to an end. It's the end. 
Think about it. What's the purpose of paper? To be written on. What's the purpose of a pen? To write with. What's the purpose of being satisfied? To be satisfied. <laughs> There's no purpose. And you might say, well, the purpose is to, the ultimate purpose is to glorify God. In what moments do you, does your soul glorify God most other than when it talks about it authentically the way David does in verse 5? Here's my attempt to sound like Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> Here's my sentence describing verse 5. The delicious juices of God's glorious love in Christ are satiating the deepest longings of David's soul because of the truth about God he relishes in his mind. We need this. We need this. But my guess is most of us are like David in verse 1. We're just thirsting. We're parched. We feel nothing. And so you should write this down. Write down Psalm 90 verse 14. Psalm 90, verse 14, David prays, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. My wife and I pray that verse almost every single morning. As I wake up and my soul is dry, my soul is empty, my soul's going after other things, and I pray Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy me, O God, with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all my days. So number four, and most importantly, David is theologically hedonistic in his aim. Number five, last but not least, number five, he doesn't let go. He doesn't let go. Verse eight, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word for clings comes from the same word in Genesis 2.24 when it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So just as a husband clings to his precious wife in love, so David holds tightly with the, with the hands of faith to his God and he does not let go. Yet this clinging, this laying hold of God this persistence, I won't let you go. This, this clinging is energized and empowered by God's right hand. That's why it says at the bottom of verse 8, your right hand upholds me. You cannot embrace God in this way without him first empowering you to do so. My desire and choice to embrace Christ is a necessary byproduct of God's right-handed power underneath my heart. Which makes sense of, verse nine, of, of Psalm 90, verse 14. Why else would David pray for him to do this? Because he knows that he can't do it unless God does it in him. So those are the five things that David does. He uh, leverages the situation calls the shores, surrenders control, is theologically hedonistic in his aim, he doesn't let go. And here's how I want to end. 
Because you're reading verses 1 through 8, and it's, it's, you're tracking with it. And then verses 9 through 12, you're like, what? I was tracking with you, David. And then verse 9 through 12, oh, I just don't know what to do with that. Verses 9 through 11, excuse me, 9, not through 9 through 12, 9 through 11. Here's how I would summarize it. It's a surprising consequence to satisfaction in God. There is a surprising consequence. Like I was surprised when I came, when I came across this. A surprising consequence to satisfaction in God. Here it is. Ready? You are free to patiently endure evil and entrust it to the sovereign judgments of God. Listen to, listen to the language in verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the, into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. That's you, God. You'll do that. I trust that you will take care of that. These people who want to kill me, these ways these people have abused me, they've, they've mocked me, they've belittled me, they've cursed me. I will do nothing about it. I will trust you with them because you are my portion. You are my satisfaction. I have you. Your steadfast love is better than life. And these things that people are doing, they are jeopardizing the precious things in my life. But your steadfast love is better than life. If his steadfast love is better, then these things over here he can entrust to the Lord. Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. I'll rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The deepest solution for your problem with suffering, with your own suffering, the deepest solution is not a rational explanation, but an emotional renovation. I'm going to say that again. The deepest solution to your problem with your own suffering and the very hard things that you have had to go through. It's not a rational explanation, but an emotional renovation. David didn't get to this point out of nowhere. He got here after he could say, my soul is satisfied with the Lord. Until you can rest satisfied in God and Jesus Christ, you will not trust him with your sufferings. Whether you have been mistreated abused, bullied, ridiculed, betrayed, or you've just been dealt a hard hand. It's just hard. The only way you can find freedom from those things holding you captive is by discovering that the steadfast love of God is better than life because those sufferings are the things that are jeopardizing your life. And if you find something better, you're free and you can trust the Lord. Then you will say, my soul is satisfied. I have you, Jesus. I trust that you will take care of this. Let's pray.